Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. This is one of the hardest conversations I've had on this podcast, also one of the most important personally. It's about my home country, India, which is being ravaged by a second wave of COVID. And it's with someone I know well. Barkha Dutt is an award-winning TV journalist, anchor and columnist, with more than two decades of reporting experience that's taken her to conflict zones around the world. She became a household name through her frontline reporting of the Kargil War between India and Pakistan in 1999. Back then, she was with a TV channel called NDTV. Since then, she's branched out on her own and is the founder-editor of Mojo, a popular digital platform. Barkha and I were classmates at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. I know that she is fearless, committed, and probably holds a record for pulling the most number of all-nighters in the computer lab because when Barkha decides to tell a story, nothing or no one can stop her. Last year, when the pandemic hit India, she traveled the length and breadth of the country, reporting on the stories of migrant laborers who had nowhere to go once Prime Minister Modi announced a sudden lockdown. This was the most transformative experience of my life. I knew that I could get COVID. Uh, I knew I was responsible for my crew, but I just felt like this was my duty. And we traveled 25,000 kilometers, a team of four in a small Maruti Ertika car across India from the north to the south, tra- you know, tracking the stories again of people who did not have a voice in the system and eventually forcing the rest of the media and the institution makers to take note. And I just felt like if I hadn't, what kind of journalist would I be? Barkha is still covering the pandemic, now with an even steelier determination because, sadly, the story has become personal. She lost her father to COVID. But just days after, she was ready to speak with me. Because by giving voice to her own story, she says, she hopes to give voice to the hundreds and thousands who don't have one. I meant that I lost my father, but And I'm an orphan today. My mother died when I was 13 years old. But I think of what I call the orphans of the Indian state who have no one to talk to them, no one to turn to, no one to guide them, and not even a fighting chance at an oxygen cylinder or a hospital bed. And I think the best tribute for my father would be for me to keep speaking for those people who couldn't even get the fighting chance that we at least tried to give. Here's my conversation with journalist Barkha Dath. 
first of all my deepest 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 condolences to you because you just lost your dad it's an incredibly tough time but how are you i wish i could say that i'm okay but i'm obviously not okay i'm heartbroken i uh, feel that that cliche that my heart has been burst into a million little splinters was not true but it's more than a million splinters and yet in some ways as a journalist who has devoted her life to reporting the pandemic for the past 15 months this became the news quite literally coming home for me i became the story i report so it's been surreal and yet for the sake of my father and for the sake of his death not being in vain and for the sake of my country and how much it's suffering at this moment i deal with my grief with my devastation by trying to find some way to work through it to keep reporting to keep doing shows and to keep having conversations with other people like yourselves around the world and you also said my best tribute to him is to redouble my commitment to report covid on the ground and give voice to those who don't have one tell me about that about giving voice to those who don't have one you've seen a lot of the devastation firsthand what do you mean by this give voice to those who don't have one so ever since the first wave of the pandemic uh not just this horrible second wave that we are currently living through my experience of reporting this crisis has been that there are people who live on the margins of india society uh, the poor the desolate those without access to health system those without access to money in 2020 we saw when the lockdown was imposed we saw millions of migrant workers walk the highways leave the cities go for the villages and we were at the peripheries of national attention in the first wave of panic when the lockdown was imposed and i remember spending much of my year following them this year uh, you know even though i struggled a bit to get my dad to hospital and basically while we were eventually able to get him the best possible excellent medical care at medanta when we initially needed to reach him to hospital we panicked and we organized a private ambulance through friends and the ambulance that arrived wasn't an ambulance it was in india what's called an old maruti van a, a rickety second hand car that they don't even manufacture anymore there was no stretcher there was no paramedic i asked the driver he was a crew of one does your cylinder work oxygen cylinder he said yes it does uh, i took a chance i sat on the front seat of, of the van my dad at the back i still am haunted by whether i took the right decision because that ambulance as it snarled through traffic and more's the pity delhi doesn't even have green corridors right now for ambulances uh, to go through without traffic by the time we reached the hospital the cylinder did not work uh, in administering high flow oxygen his levels fell and he had to be taken straight uh, into icu i in that moment became one of those many indians i report on every day who can't find an ambulance who are struggling with a health system that's overburdened you know who who don't know where to turn who in panic and desperation sometimes double guess themselves and don't always take the right decision that said once he was in hospital i was at least assured that he had the best team of doctors looking after him and they tried really hard and i'm really grateful to them but what i do know malika is that though i lost him i at least tried to give him a fighting chance at life most indians that i'm meeting outside the closed doors of hospitals emergency wards have shut down notices have been put up saying we can't take any more patients because we don't have enough oxygen we don't have enough icu beds we don't have enough ward staff most people don't even have a fighting chance at life 
So when I said that I have to redouble my commitment to those who do not have a voice, I meant that I lost my father, but, and I'm an orphan today. My mother died when I was 13 years old, but I think of what I call the orphans of the Indian state who have no one to talk to them, no one to turn to, no one to guide them, and not even a fighting chance at an oxygen cylinder or a hospital bed. And I think the best tribute for my father would be for me to keep speaking for those people who couldn't even get the fighting chance that we at least tried to give. Yeah, we're talking about you, you know, somebody who's, to put it bluntly, who's really famous in India. You know, if Barkhad Dath had to experience this, it just shows what the average person on the road experiences. What is it? Where did we go so horrendously wrong? I'll share with you something I, I, I reported on most recently. I went to a Gurdwara, which is, of course, a, a, a Sikh place of worship, about an hour from Delhi. And I went, I had to go and see this for myself because I wouldn't have believed it had I not gone. And a Gurdwara normally has what in Hindi we call a langar, which is a, 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 a banquet of free food for the poor and the needy. This Gurdwara now runs what's called an oxygen langar. Uh, and what it means is that there are giant cylinders of oxygen placed on the street outside this Gurdwara so that Indians who are being turned away from hospitals that no longer have oxygen are able to drive up here, sometimes on the back of scooters, sometimes in auto rickshaws, sometimes on the back of cycle rickshaws, sometimes in big swanky cars. They come in desperation. Some ask for an oximeter. Some ask for 30 minutes of oxygen. They get a few extra minutes of life. It's not obviously a temporary, you know, a permanent medical response, but it gives them temporary relief. And it's like the worst end of the world science fiction Netflix movie that you can imagine, except oh, that it's actually happening. And we've now had the Allahabad High Court step in to say that to not give hospitals oxygen is no less than genocide, because it's important to remember that people who are dying are not dying from COVID. There are people also dying from COVID, but many yeah. of the recent spate of deaths that we've seen have been because hospitals have not been able to administer the oxygen that they need to to patients. And high flow oxygen is one of the only therapeutic methods to treat COVID patients. We're now down to a point where the government of India is interfering with doctors in the ICU telling them what level oxygen can be maintained at, telling them, for example, that your patients have to wear masks, you can't give high-flow cannulas because high-flow cannulas consume more oxygen. This is personal for me because my father found it very difficult in his last days to wear a mask. He felt acutely claustrophobic like many elderly yeah. people do. And the doctor switched him over to a cannula. But now, as per the Government of India advisory, according to the oxygen available, cannulas are not advisable. So it, you have to go under that big uh, sort of, you know, the, the big mask, which many older people find very, very claustrophobic. They're not able to breathe in it. Besides which, how can we be interfering in medical decisions in the ICU basis, the amount of oxygen we have? So I just I just think this is shameful. I think it's criminal. I think to not be able to, to have to lose lives because you can't provide oxygen. Uh, it just points to the fact that we did not put a single contingency in place for the second wave, we gifted away and exported vaccines before we had enough for our own. Our vaccination rates are at the lowest uh, level uh, this year at a point when they need to be the highest. And, Correct. you know, the prime minister's face is on that vaccine certificate. Uh, he was all set to take the credit. Uh, who's going to step up and take, take the responsibility for the unraveling of India and our descent into COVID here? You know, our healthcare system was always, it was never great, right? I mean, our population is just too huge. 
But the fact that we got to this point where it's been so overburdened to me is shocking. And I say this as as a proud Indian, but the fact that we allowed election rallies to take place, the fact that we allowed religious gatherings to take place, why, why did we allow this to happen? This just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's your your home city, Calcutta, right? Uh, Bengal. Yeah. I mean, what was so important about that Bengal election that it couldn't wait another two months, right? Exactly. If that had been postponed, who the hell would have cared? If that election had to be happened, you know, could, could, could there not have been mandatory mask wearing? Could there not have been a restriction on the number of people allowed into rallies? There were any number, if you had to, I don't think any of it should have happened. I think right. it's criminal. I think even if you allow for the fact that the government ignored the signs, misread the second wave, what is shocking is that even when it was clear that Maharashtra was snowed under, it was being ravaged, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you went ahead at the highest levels of government and among opposition parties. I'm not going to spare them either. Even Rahul Gandhi, yeah. when he called off his campaign, was way too late. But to see your biggest leader of your countries, your prime minister, your home minister, your Bengal chief minister, all leading campaigns. Yeah. The Kumbh Mela, religious congregations taking place in the middle of all this, local elections taking place in Uttar Pradesh, India's most populous state. It's almost like a country with a death wish. And then when that death is upon us, we're like, hey, world, help us. We just abandoned science. We were callous. We were arrogant. We were ignorant. And even then we privileged politics, the image of the government, complete irrelevant nonsense over the lives of Indians who are dying on the streets? It's it's devastating. It is absolutely devastating. I want to rewind 15 months. You were one of the first few journalists and for a long time, the only journalist who really made covering the lockdown a priority. And you got into um, a car and you drove the length and breadth of India and pretty much went to every single state reporting on these migrant laborers who had nowhere to go but to go home. And many were walking 14, 15 days at a time with no shoes on their feet, the sun blazing on their heads. Tell me, why was that so important to you to track their journey and to tell their story? Yeah, um, I remember the day the prime minister announced the national lockdown. And at that time, you know, we all thought that maybe that was the only way to contain COVID. Uh, and, And we went along with the fact that there was inevitability because the rest of the world was doing it. And so maybe India had to do it. Looking back, it turned out to be something that was not planned fully because we're too big and diverse a country. No one size formula seems to work for us. But I remember the morning after going to the borders of Delhi where I live and suddenly seeing at the, at the borders of my city uh, in, in, in like a single file of the kind that I'd never seen before, men, women and children carrying little bags on their heads and just walking out of the city. And I'd never mm. seen anything like it before in my life. And I started running after them. And I, as I ran after them, I realized that not just was there no state representation at the borders. There was no police. There was no official term. There was nobody. It was like the state had gone missing. There were no journalists either. There were no journalists. There were none. Little, you were the only nothing. one. I was, there was me yes. and my camera, camera crew and I, I ran yes. after them and, and I said, where are you going? And they said, we're going home. And I said, why are you going? And they said, well, there's a lockdown. Our factories are shut. We don't have money. They were all daily wages. We don't have money. Like everybody else, we need to be with our families and yeah. we're going to die here. And how are we going to live? And for the next 60 days, it became the mission of my life to follow them, to walk with them. 
under the sun, through the night. Sometimes, you know, when the trucks came at the back of trucks, the trains came then on the back of trains. But mostly for 60 days, they walked. And they sometimes walked 1,100 kilometers without food, with little children, barefoot. And, you know, it was just, it became, for me, like a test of my journalistic life to tell this story. I just felt that if I stayed in my studio in Delhi and I told it, I would be failing as, as a journalist and that everything I had trained for, I'd covered war. Uh, I, I, I cut my teeth covering the Cargill war. Uh, but from Cargill to this, I consider this the bookends of, of my life. This was the most transformative experience of my life. I knew that I could get COVID. Uh, I knew I was responsible for my crew, but I just felt like this was my duty. And we traveled 25,000 kilometers, a team of four in a small Maruti Ertika car across India from the north to the south, you know, tracking the stories again of people who did not have a voice in the system and eventually forcing the rest of the media uh, and the institution makers to take note. And I just felt like if I hadn't, what kind of journalist would I be? Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You say this was transformational, and yet, like you said, you're someone who's covered wars. How is it transformational? Why? Because in when you report war, you're able to define, to some extent, who the adversary is, what the danger is, what you need to duck from. You need, you know, you need to duck when the bombs come. You know, you need to take refuge. You know, you need to find an underground bunker. You know, you need to wear a bulletproof vest. But what do you do with COVID where you don't understand, A, the nature of the adversary, B, it's everywhere, C, you can't see it, four, you're responsible for other people other than yourselves, fifth, it just carries on forever. It's, it's length. There is no finite, even to wars, at least of the kind we've experienced in, in, in contemporary times, there is a beginning and an end to a war. As it has turned out, it has been 15 months and there is no end to COVID. It transformed me because I think I have rarely seen the scale of 
suffering, the scale of incompetence, the scale of death, the scale of fear, the scale of lack of science. I mean, it was all of it together, right? And yet there was hope and yet there was resilience and yet there were, there were moments of people coming to each other's help and showing compassion. And it was just a melange of so many emotions. And I mean, I think it's going to take me years to process what reporting this story, covering the devastation, losing my father through it, all of it, like the moving pieces of grief and loss and rage. And I don't know. I don't even know how. I, I, I think I'm still not fully sure how it's changing me every single day, every single hour. But thank God you've been covering this because honestly, you did it single-handedly. But you do have a very small team and obviously a passionate team. And you were reporting for your own platform, Mojo. You quit NDTV. You were a leading anchor there. You were with NDTV of, you know, a leading television station in India for more than 20 years. But you decided to quit to start something on your own. Was that daunting? It was very daunting. I mean, if you have, if you had like a big organization protecting you all your life, providing you uh, resources, providing you infrastructure, providing you, you know, just the backup that you need. Uh, providing you also the platform, yeah. the platform most more, yeah. more than anything else. And yet I felt that, I felt a couple of things. I felt that t- TV news had begun to die in India. I felt that I TV news was becoming stale and I was in danger of becoming stale with it. Uh, I also felt that I had a choice. That choice was that I could peak where I was and then plateau, or I could find a new mountain to climb. And, uh, you know, I just felt like I needed a new mountain to climb because I felt otherwise my best years would be behind me. And I wanted my Mm. best years of professional work to be ahead of me. But has it been easy? No, it's, I started from scratch. We're a team of 10, 50% of them are down with COVID. We've done this entire second wave with four people. We traveled all of India last year with four people. And I just think that I still feel some pride in the fact that such a small team was able to set the agenda where giant broadcast channels with really deep pockets didn't. Because in some ways in India, TV news stopped telling the stories of people and just became this talking head oriented, you know, uh, important people's platform where you got the same 10 experts to regurgitate the same 10 facts every day and the rawness, the authenticity uh, of the citizen's voice had gone away from content. And so I think at Mojo, like my attempt has been to reclaim, somebody asked me, is it Barkha 2.0? And I said, no, it's actually Barkha 1.0. It's like going back mm-hmm. to where I started. It's finding myself again. It's remembering what made me happy. I'd interviewed some of the most important people in the world, but nothing made me happier than telling the stories of people. And for me to be able to return to that, I think has been satisfying. It'll take me time to build my platform to the level of a big platform. But I think the fact that we've been able to set the agenda with the COVID-19 pandemic pretty much globally shows that the audience is hungry for content that is authentic. You're obviously so passionate about what you do. And I've known you long enough to know that you really do breathe and live journalism. And a lot of this comes from your mom, doesn't it? Who was also a journalist. Yeah. Deep, deep influence. Grew up on stories of my mom being 19 years old, walking into, uh, there was no television then, walking into the Hindustan Times, a major newspaper, uh, asking for a job, being told that women are not available to be hired in the newsroom. You can go and cover the city flower show if you want, (laughs) fighting her way 
rising to become the head of the bureau, becoming India's first woman war correspondent well before I did. A war breaks out between India and Pakistan in 1965. She goes to the same editor who now likes her, appreciates her work, says, I want to go to cover the war. He says, women can't go to the front line. She says, if you won't let me cover the only story that matters, let me go on holiday. Takes her notepad, has a cousin in the army, goes to the border alone, starts sending dispatches, files those stories. And, you know, I think that was my influence. That, and to my father, who, when my mom died, could have sheltered and corseted his two daughters, but stopped his beating heart from being overprotective and set us free and allowed us to dream and, 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 and follow role models like that of my mother. And, and I think it's almost genetic. I mean, where would I be without these parents? Who, who, what's the toughest thing for a parent to allow your child into danger? My mother set that template by living a dangerous life while she was alive. Professionally, I mean. And my father, though he lost her and he worried always about losing me, he held back his trepidation because he knew that I needed to be this person who would go out there and tell the story. And and so, yes, I think when you have those role models, uh, that journalism just becomes its second skin. It's not a job for me. I even that's why a lot of people don't know my father's, you know, not been dead a week and I'm I'm working and I say that it's the only way I know how to be. Yeah, absolutely. When you were describing your mom, I was just thinking to myself, my God, it sounds like someone I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your mom fought to get her way out of covering flower shows and to make it to the front lines. As a woman in India, you've had your own battles to fight. And gender equality for the last, you know, 15 years has really become more of the national conversation in India than ever before. What are some of the fights you've had to to take on? Yeah, I think the first thing is to understand that nobody likes a successful woman. Nobody likes a woman with a mind of her own. Uh, The better you do, the more you're likely to be pulled down, the more you're likely to be scrutinized. It took me a long time to not disown my gender In my 20s, I would not have wanted to play emphasis on my gender. I would have wanted to be judged entirely on my work. Till I lived through these years and I realized that at every stage, there will be a gendering of how I'm assessed. Uh, You know, whether it is to talk about the length of my hair, the weight of my body, the color of my skin, whether I'm married, whether I have children, or whether I laugh too loudly, whether I emote too much, whether I'm too shrill. The way women will be judged will be just totally different from men. The better we do, the more we'll be resented. And also, I think we know that misogyny and feminism are both gender neutral. Sometimes the pushback will come from other other women because they're products of the same patriarchy. Sometimes that support will come from men because they're enlightened and products of the same feminism. And I think that I I realize that to be be yourself uh, in this country as a woman is a lonely place to be. I remember interviewing uh, Hillary Clinton once who quoted Eleanor Roosevelt. And she said that, you know, a woman learns to develop a, a skin as, as the hide of a rhinoceros. I think I learned over the years to ignore those who have worked hard to pull me down, to focus mm. on positive energy, to filter out the noise, to be stubborn, to be myself. But is it exhausting? It can sometimes be emotionally exhausting. It takes a toll on the best of us. And I've seen younger women sometimes 
wander off some of these very hostile social platforms because they cannot take the relentless scrutiny. They cannot take the relentless appraisal. And till we start acknowledging that women are judged in a way that men just are not, women are working three times harder to get to the same point as men. I think we will we will be undermining and glossing over how hard it is to be a woman in today's India. You have 7.2 million followers on Twitter. That's the size of a small country. And I have seen some of the trolling. I, you know, obviously I follow you and I've seen some of the abuse you get. There's no other word for it. And you said you've developed a way of coping. How have you coped? What's given you that strength? In the beginning, when I was an early mover to Twitter, I would argue, I would actually think that these guys wanted to have a genuine debate. They were being genuinely critical. Mm. I should engage. It was the new democratic space. And then I realized that there's something so organized about all of this. Some of them are bought. Some of them are paid. Some of them are ideological. Some of them are just misogynist. And I kind of quickly figured out that ignoring them is 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 something that they just hate more than anything else. If you're able to ignore them, nothing irritates them more. And I think that it hasn't been easy always. It, it's it's a mind game and it's taken me training. But now I, I literally have the instruments to not engage. Uh, and sometimes very hurtful things are said. Sometimes blatant lies are said. Sometimes you're accused yeah. of like the most absurd things, right? And and But I just have steeled myself to not respond. In the end, I have only one mantra, hunker down and do your work. Sooner or later, your work will be recognized. Sooner or later, your work will speak for itself. Sooner or later, even in an unfair world, even in a sexist world, even in a world where hard work doesn't always immediately pay results, sooner or later it will. And I think that I have seen that in this biggest story that I've ever reported in my life with a team of what, four and a half people. I have covered this story in a way that I think most international networks have made note of some of the work we've done at Mojo. And so I just hang on to that belief, hunker down and work and let the rest take care of itself. And thank you for doing what you're doing, because as I've been saying throughout this podcast, I genuinely believe you have been doing this alone. Thank you, Malika. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and stay strong and most importantly, stay safe, because I know you and I know you're going to be back out there in your little Maruti car driving around India well before COVID is settled. Mask up, take your jabs and stay safe. And thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Barkha Dat. My thoughts are with her as she, like thousands in India and so many more around the world, grieve the loss of a loved one. This is Out of Office for this week. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you stay safe. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening. Your industry is unique. 
It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.